The army was gathered, battle was inevitable, the massive army awaited action. Valor was gone, fear was dominant, I don't think we can win this. The king and army of Israel were on one mountain, the Philistines on the other. The military champion Goliath of Gath, armed and ready for combat, had issued his challenge, a duel, a fight, uh, to the death between him and the best mighty warrior of Israel. The two soldiers would fight as representatives of their respective nations and determine the future of their people. Death of one meant slavery for all. Victory of one meant freedom for all. King Saul and his army considered the terms. Saul was king. He was the handsomest and tallest man in all of Israel. He was also terrified. Terrified and refused to face Goliath in combat. Fear. The battle line was drawn. The cry of war was in the air. Goliath issued the challenge again. And the warriors of Israel fled in fear from the front line. Who could face the villain? There was one. One anointed youth. One with unwavering confidence in the Lord. One who was ready to bear a nation on his shoulders and to fight without fear. As a loyal servant of God and King, the one told his leader, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Cue the hardcore music. With a grip of his staff... And a sling clenched in his fist, five stones on his side, faith in his heart. The one representative of Israel called out bravely to the pagan warrior, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Only one believed. Only one trusted the Lord. Only one approached the villain because he was captivated by the glory and omnipotence of Almighty God. When Goliath arose and came to meet the anointed one, David ran, but he didn't run away. Filled with aggressive and valiant trust in God, the anointed one ran to the battle. He ran to the enemy. He ran to evil. When no one else would, to kill the warrior that no one else could kill, he loaded his sling, one smooth stone, and in one shot, he embedded it into the skull of the warrior and dropped him to the ground. He approached his fallen enemy, raised a borrowed sword in the air, and cut off Goliath's head. How many times have we been told that if we trust God, we can conquer our giants? That's not the point, nor is it the best application of this history. How often have we heard this text and thought we were David? You and I are not David in this story. 
We are weak and pathetic and faithless and powerless Saul and Israel who cannot possibly face the enemy and win. We're the ones sucking our thumbs in the corner, not ready. We are the ones cowering in fear. We need someone to come and to fight for us. David is the one who foreshadowed Christ, who in a glorious act of valor on a cross conquered the enemy of sin and death and Satan and hell on our behalf so that we could be saved. No, we are not David. You are not David. I am not David. We are the ones that are saved by the greater David. The gospel says that we have a mighty anointed king who faced the enemy and secured our victory in his victory. It was his valor. It was his strength. It was his victory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, asks this, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And it answers very rightly, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Psalm 20 will be much more meaningful to you if you remember this. The king fights and wins for his people. The king fights and wins for his people. His victory is our victory. So the point this morning is actually really simple. Our victory is in our king's victory. Our victory is in our king's victory. Let me set the scene. Psalm 20 was for God's people to sing. From the start, you notice that the use of the singular pronouns, you and your, in verses 1 through 5. When you look closely, it's the congregation of Israel singing and praying for their king. The you and your refer to the anointed Davidic king. Since verse 1 mentions the king's day of trouble, the song is likely a, uh, a war song sung in the, in the face of battle. The king goes to war for his people. He fights for their triumph. So the Lord saving the king is the focal point of the, of the song. See, the people realize that their welfare was directly connected to the king's welfare. They longed for God to save the king so that in his victory, they would have victory as well. So as you study Psalm 20, focus on the king. In verses 1 through 5, the people plead for God's favor upon the king. In verse 6, either the king himself, which is cool to think about, or a priest or perhaps someone else speaks a rallying cry to, uh, of faith and confidence in the Lord. And then in verses 7 through 9, the people trust in the Lord. And it's helpful to know this, that Psalm 21 actually goes with Psalm 20, uh, so, so it follows nicely, expressing then gratitude for the king's victory after it happened. And so maybe this week it would benefit you to study Psalm 21 in conjunction with this message. So let's hit the text here, verses 1 through 3. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings, Selah. The first point is this, our answer in our day of trouble is our King, Jesus Christ. The word answer repeats, verses 1, 6, and 9, the congregation was asking the Lord to answer the Davidic king in the day of trouble, which assumes something significant. The king was praying. The king was praying. 
to the Lord. Could it be that the king was on his knees, perhaps outside of the tabernacle, pleading with God to answer him as he's headed into combat to represent his people, and around him the people are praying for him? Well, if that's right, and that was the scene, what a beautiful scene that would have been. If, if this is a war song, which I think it is, the trouble mentioned is combat for Israel. This is war, bloody war. And when the battle rages, the Lord's people want protection and conquest for the Lord's anointed king. God's name is important. It communicates who God is. 19th century theologian William S. Plumer wrote this, quote, God's essence is hid from us. His name is that by which he is known to us. End of quote. His name. He reveals himself. God's name is infinitely important. God's gracious covenant was with Jacob as well as it was with Adam and or, uh, Abraham and Isaac. And eventually, God gave Jacob the name of Israel, who was the father of the nation. So Jacob, in verse 1, represents God's covenant community of faith or the church. In Genesis 35, it was Jacob who said that God answered him in the day of his distress. The name of the covenant God of Jacob protects his people, does protect his people. So the covenant community then cried out to the Lord to protect their anointed king, protect our king. Protect is literally to set on high, uh, to set in a high and lofty place, which would have meant security and protection for the king. They pled with the Lord to send help for the king from the sanctuary or, or the sacred and holy dwelling place of God from the tabernacle and then later the temple. God's presence would be their divine aid. God's holy presence in the sanctuary was critical to the success of the king and all of Israel. Support in verse 2 is to hold someone up, to strengthen them, to sustain them. The community of faith appealed that God send support from Zion. Zion was a stronghold of the, of the Jebusites that David captured and then made his residence. Zion became known as the city of David or Jerusalem, which was on a mountain. And yet it was eventually the great temple mount or the dwelling place of God. Zion, the dwelling place of God where he is with his people. So again, the idea is that the presence of God would uphold the king in his day of trouble. In verse 3, the people were essentially praying, Oh Lord, please accept the sacrifices of the king. May they be pleasing in your sight. God, please receive this. Offerings were often bloodless and voluntary gifts, and then burnt animal sacrifices were exactly that. They took the animal, threw it on the altar, and, and burned it to ashes. Offerings and burnt sacrifices were presented to the Lord uh, in the Old Testament for various reasons, but here it seems to be the king's act of faith through which the king sought God's divine favor for battle. When the king presented offerings and burnt sacrifices to the Lord, it expressed his faith, his trust, his dependency upon Almighty God. Now let me ask you a question. How will you fare in your day of trouble? And I don't just mean illness or debt or marital conflict and difficulty or your children not walking with the Lord as you would like. All that's trouble, absolutely for sure. There is battle in all of those things. But how do you fare facing the trouble of your sin 
and imminent death every day of your life? Will God come through for you in that trouble? And I assure you the answer is yes. Yes. But there is a condition. In verses 1 through 3, just look at it. The king and the people looked to the Lord. They called upon the Lord for help and protection and victory. They sought strength and support from the presence of God. Offerings and sacrifices were given in faith and dependence. The condition of God's favor is faith in the Lord, which God sovereignly provides for His people. There is a condition. You must be trusting in Him to be blessed. And God gives you that faith as a precious gift of His sovereign grace. Knowing And following Christ does not exempt you from trouble. God's people have huge trouble. Huge. And sometimes it's simply because they know Christ that they have trouble. Andrew Brunson is in prison for Christ. And so trouble is going to come. But when that trouble comes, when you face that When the battle is inevitable, knowing and following the king means you have someone to fight for you. You have a representative to win, to go to the battlefield and win for you. In your day of trouble, when you face the battle of sin and suffering, which comes quite strong, quite angrily, quite viciously, the Lord will answer you. The Lord will help you. He will support you. He will regard you with favor when you trust His anointed Son, Jesus Christ, the one who went to battle for you and achieved your victory. His victory is your victory through faith. Amen? Five quick points to trust in. Number one, Jesus is our answer. God has already given an answer for the day of trouble. His anointed Son, Number two, Jesus is our protection. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace in our, he is our divine aid from God. He is our safety. Number three, Jesus is our help. Jesus is our sanctuary. He is our temple. He is our Emmanuel. He is our divine aid. Number four, Jesus is our support. He holds us up. He comforts us. He sustains us. And let me say at this point that Zion in verse 2 is a clear allusion to a greater kingdom. The heavenly Zion in which Christ reigns. Read Hebrews 12. I wish I could go there. But just read Hebrews 12 where Zion is the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Number five, Jesus is our final and perfect sacrifice. Isn't it great? We don't have to slaughter any more animals. Those of you who are animal lovers, save the animals. There's, there's a, there is a sacrifice that is sufficient. His name is Jesus. And He is our final and sufficient sacrifice. We don't need the temple. We don't need sacrifices. That whole system is gone. His death is our death. His life is our life. Therefore, in union with Him, oh, dear Christian, we are acceptable to Him. We are pleasing to Him. See, when we read Psalm 20, we read it with Christ in mind. The song pushes us to look to our King and to trust in what He has accomplished for us in the victory of battle. Through faith, His victory is our victory. His victory is our victory. Second point, our greatest desire and joy are achieved for us in the victory of our King Jesus Christ. 
the people continued to pray, verses 4 and 5. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Our greatest desire and joy are achieved for us in the victory of our King Jesus Christ. The context of verse 4 assumes that the king's desire and plans are honorable, are noble, are submitted to the Lord. This is not personal ambition of some warlord going out to conquer everything to, to increase his territory. These are noble things that are desires of the king who is submitted to the Lord. Verse 4 assumes the king longs to obey the law of God to the honor and glory of God and, this is very great, to the good of God's people. That was the king's duty Now, NCAA basketball, I haven't been tracking it this year, but I do love basketball, probably one of my favorite sports to play and and to watch. And the championship of this is, is April 2nd. I think we're down to the final four, if I'm not mistaken. I want you to imagine the NCAA championship, the finals. There's one second left. And let's say that the underdog Cinderella team, I don't know if there are any of those in the final four right now, but probably not. But the underdog Cinderella team is down by two. Again, one second left on the clock. And against a full court press, they inbound the ball, they turn, and have just enough time to throw up a prayer. Swish. Now what happens to the crowd? That is exactly what David is talking about here. Explosive joy. The king's salvation in the day of trouble would be an occasion for explosive joy because his victory is their victory. If the Lord fulfilled the king's petitions, if the Lord showed favor to the king in the time of battle, the nation could rise with the victory flag and rejoice. Explosive joy. This is about much more than military victories of the nation of Israel. You've got to see that. It is about so much more than that. The salvation in Psalm 20 foreshadows the greater salvation, the the salvation from sin and death that King Jesus achieves on the battlefield for his people. The Lord is rescuing a people for himself through the victory of his anointed king. Now, verse 6 is the centerpiece of the song. Uh, For one voice, uh, one verse, the voice changes. The voice of the people recedes, and and one voice emerges. Perhaps the king, perhaps a priest, perhaps someone else. But this one voice proclaims certain hope for God's people. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Third point. God has powerfully saved us by delivering our King Jesus Christ from death, from death. In verse 6, the one voice is confident, really confident, that people prayed for the king, and this one voice gave them assurance, the Lord saves his anointed. The Lord saves his anointed. Fact, that's a fact. This one voice declared that God delivers his anointed one, and by solidarity with the anointed one, the people are delivered as well. God God would answer his anointed one from heaven. God would save by the might of his right hand. And here, right hand signifies ultimate power and protection and provision and pleasure. It's huge, 
huge scene. David said in Psalm 18, verse 50, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, I ask the question, who is David's offspring? Who is the anointed? Now, anointed is a big, 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 big word in Scripture. Anointed means that God has chosen to set a person apart, to ordain them to something. And in this case, the Lord has chosen and anointed the king. The king was considered the anointed one or Messiah. David was a type of Christ. His role uh, as king is foreshadowing Christ. It points to the preeminent kingship of God's son, Jesus. Jesus is David's offspring. Jesus is God's anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. Heidelberg Catechism number 31, which we looked at. Thank you, Tim, for showing that to us in class this morning. Why it asks this question, why is he called Christ that is anointed? So the term Messiah or Christ means anointed. Okay? Why is Jesus the anointed one? Help us out here. So here's how the Heidelberg answers. Pay very close attention. Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. Here's the king part. And our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. As God's anointed and preeminent king, Jesus Christ governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the redemption that he has conquered and secured for us. The victory of the anointed one is our victory through faith. Praise God. Praise God. I have good news for you this morning. The Lord has saved his anointed. Jesus ran to the battle. He ran to evil. He ran to the enemy and crushed the enemy through the cross. Acts 13, 29 and 30 says, They took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. This is so great. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. When the king was dead... God did not allow his anointed to see corruption. Instead, God delivered him from the grave to rise and to stand in sweet victory in the collapse and fall of his enemies. The king has vanquished. The king has conquered. The king has overcome. Now, if it is the king speaking in verse 6, imagine how his words would have had punch for the people. That would have been an... I hope it was the king speaking. That would be my preference here. Christ is telling you that the Lord answered him. The Lord delivered him from death. And if you look to him, the king, if you look to the king, Jesus Christ, if you trust the king, Jesus Christ, then in him you are delivered from death as well. The king's victory over death is your victory over death, dear believer. To the one, everyone who trusts in him, his victory is yours. The kingdom of God has been given to everyone who enters it with the king. 
you will not enter this glorious kingdom unless you are with the king. You need Christ to win. You need Christ to have the kingdom forever. And it is a glorious kingdom. In verses 7 and 8, you'll notice that the congregation begins singing again. And uh, now the tone is slightly different. Now they sing with assurance. They sing with response to the hope that was given them by this one voice in verse 6. Some trust in chariots, they sing, and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Fourth point, we will be confident in the day of our trouble when we trust in the victory of our King, Jesus Christ. We will be confident in the day of our trouble when we trust in the victory of our King, Jesus Christ. To trust in chariots and horses, understand what he's saying there? That's to trust in yourself. That's self-reliance. That's pride. That's saying, I can do it apart from the supernatural work of God in my life. I can take care of this. I can do it. It's pride. And Israel, Israel's enemies, they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't trust the covenant promises of God. They put their confidence in the size and strength of their military. Well, that didn't work for Goliath and the Philistines. He got his head cut off and they got dominated by Israel. That's what happens. Verse 8 tells us where self-reliance ends. Collapse, fall, and ruin. Well, God's people are different. They're different. Their confidence is in the Lord. And they rise and they stand upright in victory. They're different. They're conquerors. They're more than conquerors. The, the, the people in verse 7 were singing about their total weakness and inability. Don't you think that's, that's interesting? They're, they're crying out saying, we can't. We need God. I think that's interesting. And as you may know, Israel was the fewest of all people. They were tiny, insignificant, but God swore an oath. God made a covenant. And Israel was great under King David, not because of military might, but because of the promises of God. And because the Lord was with them. Their victory was all about the Lord conquering for them. That's what their victory was. Not the exertion of their military or the force of their chariots and horses. And what a vivid illustration of this truth to think of all those Egyptian horses and chariots and horsemen and soldiers washing up on the shore of the Red Sea dead and destroyed, decimated by the Lord who flexed His might and flexed His power and conquered for His people. What an epic moment. And after that epic moment, you got to love what Moses and Israel were singing. The lyrics are amazing. Just listen to what they sang. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him with my, uh, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. what that moment would have been like. Wow. And right there, that destroys DIY spirituality. Done. Done. Gone is self-help. Gone is self-assurance. Gone is self-actualization. And gone is self-esteem. What do you have to boast in? We have nothing but the Lord. God's people rise and stand upright because they trust in the name of the Lord their God because His triumph is their triumph. That's what I want you to see. 
His victory is your victory, the victory of your precious king. Now, if I may gently come at this, this may really push some buttons this morning. Way too many Christians put way too much hope in Donald Trump. In politics, in the military, in economics, way too many Christians put way too much hope in their investments and in insurance and in job security and in health. Now look, this is a struggle for all of us. I get it. I'm not outside of that struggle. There's a tension here. You know, when the, when the president thing comes around, I'm always like engaged for that little bit and then I'm like, well, whatever. You know, then I move on. It still matters though. There are blessings in every single one of these things, but trusting in them is self-reliance. That's what it is. Call it what it is. It's self-reliance, which only brings collapse and fall. Our own power, our own strength, our own endurance is not assurance for us. It can't be. It will not be there for you when you need it. What happens to nations that trust in chariots and horses? They collapse. They fall. Where is the Assyrian Empire? Where is the Babylonian Empire? Where is the Persian Empire? Where is the Roman Empire? God made them all great in their time, in His divine sovereignty and in His plan, and then He crushed them because of their self-reliance. The United States, pressing in a little closer. Oh yeah, I'm bringing up our nation. The United States of America is a wonderful place to live. And there is much greatness in our nation but it will not last. It will not. As great as our nation is, it sits on the swiftly collapsing foundation of individualism, greed, arrogance, immorality, and godlessness. Look around. In God we trust is a platitude for our country. Our pluralism dilutes the very word God. Which God do we put our trust in? We don't have an answer for that because our answer is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course many of God's people reside in our nation, even hold great positions of power, which is a blessing to us. We should rejoice in that. I don't mean to minimize that, but we cannot ignore that our nation in many ways has made a complete mockery of the phrase, in God we trust. It does not mean what Scripture makes it mean. America is not Israel. America is not God's chosen nation. Americans are not God's chosen people. In fact, and I would very gently approach this to, to appeal to you to look beyond Israel, the nation of Israel today, to see that God's people have always been those who trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, either before the cross or after the cross. As Paul said very clearly and openly in Romans 9, the true Israel is not a political entity and it is not an ethnicity. It is a people chosen by God for eternal life who trust in the person and work of Christ alone. This is the gospel. The true church of Jesus Christ has continued from the Garden of Eden. And yes, it was inside of the nation of Israel. And yes, it is inside of America today. But Christ has united one people, chosen of God, those who by faith trust in the Lord and His anointed. It's those who trust in Christ alone who will rise and will stand in victory with the King. You have to love the King You have to stand by faith with the king. 
And if you don't, you are an enemy of the king, Jew or Gentile. Psalm 20 is showing us that true salvation, true deliverance, true liberation comes by trusting in the name of the Lord God. And now we know that the Lord God is the man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. In verse 8, David foreshadowed an ultimate collapse and fall, the judgment and wrath of Almighty God. And he also foreshadowed the ultimate rising and standing upright in glorious victory achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ, a victory unto eternal salvation from sin and death. It's always been about sin. It's always been about spiritual deliverance. And it has never ultimately been about a nation and its military victories. If that's as far as it goes, you're missing the bigger picture of what it was pointing to, Christ. All of Old Old Testament history, it happened, it's real, it's, it's historic fact, and yet it all points to the person and work of Jesus Christ who inside of time, inside of space, rescues his people to enjoy victory with him. His true people are Jew and Gentile alike. Is that not what the New Testament says? We are one in Christ. In a final plea, the people sing, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And let me just say to hopefully your greatest joy and pleasure, God has saved the king. God has saved the king. Just look at the cross. Just look at the empty tomb. God has saved the king. Our victory is in our king's victory. That's what I want you to get and to be encouraged with. The king's victory is your victory. God answered in our time of trouble when the enemy of sin and death had conquered us and we had no hope because we were spiritually dead. When we faced an eternity of separation from the Lord, God sent one He sent one man. He sent the greater David. He sent the greater king. He sent the greater Messiah to win the war for us. I like what David Strain said about this, a pastor, I think of the South. It's a long quote, but stay with it because it's helpful. Dr. Strain said this. We don't pray the words of Psalm 21 through 5 anymore, for our king does not stand in need of our prayers His victory is not in any doubt. His salvation is not in any question. You remember how, like David in Psalm 20, on the eve of battle, our king, the Lord Jesus, he also cried to God, didn't he? He cried out in Gethsemane, and the Lord sustained him and upheld him and supported him even through the nightmare of Golgotha. He went down into the day of trouble, and he waged his warfare against Satan, and he crushed the serpent's head though it cost him his life. He vanquished death. The scripture says it was impossible that death should hold him, and so on the third day he rose again to life in triumph and victory, end of quote. That's good. Dr. Strain is exactly right. Psalm 20, verses one through five, is not our prayer anymore. It's not our prayer anymore. We have a victorious king. You have a victorious king. He already won the war against sin and death. Therefore, we have our answer. We have our protection. We have our help. We have our support. We are regarded with favor. We have our heart's desire and plans met. 
We have a victory to celebrate. We can wave the victory flag. We have had our prayers answered in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the King, who now prays for us. Now, I think a good application of all of this would be to pray for your president and political leaders. I do. I think you should do that. But that application falls short of a, the greatest application of this text. There is a conquering and victorious king who has defeated evil, defeated sin, defeated death, and defeated Satan and his armies. And if you turn from your sin and trust in the name of the Lord your God, his glorious victory is our glorious victory. That's what I think will help you in the everyday grind of life. Pray for your president. But look to Christ, the greatest king. His victory is your victory. I think that will get you through. To trust Christ What is that? Faith, trust, confidence in God. How do I do that? You trust that his victory is your victory and that that makes a difference every day of your life. In every situation you face, his victory is your victory and you can serve him. I think that's helpful for us in everything. His victory makes a difference. We have one who fought for us and won. So as we now fight and we fight hard, he fights for us. He fights in us. He fights through us as we trust his spirit to go to slay the great enemy of sin and death which will not prevail ever for you who are in Christ. Look to the king. Father, I thank you for this glorious day that we are on a snowy spring day. What in the world? God, thank you. You're you're wild sometimes. I love it. Um, God, as we saw Adri, uh, Avery, oh, there I'm going, Audrey, that's her name, Audrey Avery, uh, God, her precious baptism, and we look to your promises in the gospel of Christ. And then we hear this incredible uh, psalm, Psalm 20, who points us to the king and his finishing work. We don't have to pray for our king, our king prays for us. He represents us. And God, I just say thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our King, who has done everything that we could possibly imagine. He was the one that ran to the battlefield for us because we were weak and powerless and faithless. And he showed up and conquered the great villain of sin and death. And so God, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ that they would look to the King and draw incredible comfort incredible joy, that they would have explosive joy because of what you have done through Christ for them. I pray that they enjoy this message, that they can be free, that they can know that Christ has won freedom. We're not enslaved anymore. We don't have to sit cowering in fear wondering if our king is going to win. He has won, and he's liberated us. We're completely free forever. And so I pray that that goes deep down in our hearts, God, that when we face trouble, when we face our continuing sin and how big it seems, and we're like, I don't know if I can get through this. I'm so weak that we would look to Christ. We would remember our baptism to say, I have one who fights for me. His victory is my victory. God has made his covenant sure in Christ. We love you, God. Thank you for this. In the precious name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen.